Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Ray already mentioned it, but I just want to mention it again. Uh, worship team was awesome this morning. You guys were, you're amazing. I, I love who you are and what you do. Uh, we're so fortunate um, to have those guys. Every song that was uh, sung this morning was written by the person who was singing it. Um, Erica, your new song is just ridiculous. Bam. It's so good. Um, it's so cool. We do this thing in the summer. Uh, we call it, we don't call it anything. We just have a songwriting circle. <laughs> I invite a few people into it, and we write songs from May until the end of July or August, and uh, we write songs every two weeks. In order to stay in the group, you have to bring a song. If you don't bring a song, we kick you out of the group. Like, like we're not mad. We're just like, dude, you're, you're, you didn't write a song, so you're out. And we had, um, we had nine people in our group this summer writing, and we've probably written about 60 or 65 songs. And so really our heart is to write the songs that our church will sing for the next year during the summer. And so these are just some of the ones that we've written in the past few months that are kind of beginning to bubble out. Um, we're going to be recording an album in October, a live album here with Vineyard Music Group. It'll be a national album, and these are some of the songs that I think will probably make the album, though we don't know yet. Um, some of those choices are made by the higher-ups, but it's just really cool to have a, a church where people, like the words that we use to worship God are written by the people. You know, that's... that's that moves my heart. So high fives to you guys. And Erica, I, I love it. I see the thing that, that gets me about Erica is she's the stay-at-home mom that everyone would typically just overlook. What? She's not a musician? Whatever. She comes in and writes this song and on the day she wrote it. I nearly flipped out. I went home a little bit embarrassed because I flipped out so much about it because I went home thinking, wow, the other people in the group probably think I don't like their song. And it wasn't that. It's just that she wrote this killer song. Glenn was there. He remembers it. It was kind of dumb. So, anyway, high fives to all of you guys. We really appreciate it. Hey, if you want to, open up your Bibles to, Je- to Daniel this morning. I'm actually going to preach out of Daniel. What? I can't believe it. Yes, uh, for those of you who don't know, I started a series in Daniel and then never preach out of it. <laughs> That's how I roll. And um, to make matters even worse, we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 2. Like, I know that Dusty, I know you preached out of Daniel 3, and I know that, I know that Andrea preached out of Daniel 4, and that we should have been moving along, and I just couldn't. So, this series has, uh, there's nothing regular about it, and there's nothing chronological about it. Amen. Was that you, Sam? Come on. Encourage me. Yeah, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 17 through 29 this morning. And what I want to talk to you about this morning, I felt like I needed to talk to you guys about uh, walking in Revelation. How how to live a lifestyle where we walk in Revelation. Um, We're actually not going to read that right now. Before we get into that particular part, I want to set it up this way. Um, It's not your fault, Nate. It's my fault. It's not you, it's me. Um, The Bible, um, we're going to talk about walking in Revelation this morning. And the the reason um, that it's essential that we walk in Revelation is because eventually everybody in the room is absolutely positively going to need it. Everybody in the room is absolutely positively going to come to a juncture in their life when you need, you need illumination uh, beyond human wisdom, and you need the illumination of the Spirit. Um, before we get into that much, I want to um, I want to just remind you of some of the great promises in Scripture, some of the great Bible promises. Maybe you have a little book on your coffee table or on your nightstand. Bible promises, right? Ray's shaking his head. He has one. Um, I want to read some to you. Nate, why don't you start with me? Help me now. Uh, Everybody knows this one, right? We're going to put it on the big screen so that no one's embarrassed. But Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Nate. Like, you can't even go onto a college campus without somebody telling you Jeremiah 29, verse 11, right? Like, if you have a college home group, I guarantee you some college kid is going to be like, well, my favorite scripture is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. 
Nathan, work with me. Some of the great promises of Scripture. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then you'll call on me and come and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place which I carried you into exile. Isn't that great? That's am- By the way, this is, a, this is a Bible promise that's directly connected to the book of Daniel. We don't even go there. That's one of the great Bible promises. What about, what about this other one in Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3. Dr. Ray calls this God's telephone number. Jeremiah 33, 3. <laughs> Call to me and I'll answer you and I'll tell you great and un- unsearchable things that you don't know. That's pretty good. What about this one? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. It says he gives power to the weak and he gives strength to the powerless. Even the youths grow tired and weary. Anybody weary? Like I consider myself a young man, but I'm getting tired, y'all. And the young men will stumble and fall, but those whose hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and they'll not be faint. That's above average. We should probably do some New Testament ones as well, um, just for balance sake. What about Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's Jesus, by the way. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could just read these all morning, couldn't we? Like church is almost over. So we've got all these great Bible promises, even like from the Lord Jesus. And then, then there's this other great promise from the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, uh, and in this life you will have trouble. Oh, dang it, Jesus, we were on such a good roll there. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Brother Jesus. Honestly, I probably should put it up. Why don't you put up John 16? It's actually a great Bible promise as well. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he says, I've told you these things so that you can have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Here's the good news. But take heart because I've overcome the world. But right there in the minute, right there in the middle is bummer Jesus. (laughs) In this world, you will have trouble. The reason I bring it up is because the reason that everyone in the room is absolutely positively eventually going to need revelation in their life is very simple because in this world you will experience trouble it's right there with all the other promises here's one of the real bummers we're going to work from bummer to not bummer this morning okay i'm going to start by bumming you out and then we'll go from there um trouble's just part of the matrix that we live in like, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but you can, you can try to do good. You can try to do good, and you can even have absolutely, positively, pure motives in doing good, and the outcome can be trouble. It's really true. I've, I've met with too many people where, where the motivation was absolutely, positively, goodness, and the outcome was absolutely, positively, disaster. couple scenarios. Uh, I know a woman who was coming out of college and fell down the stairs and broke her back, went in for surgery, which didn't work, to get another surgery, which didn't work. The doctor gave her pain pills, and now her life's a wreck because she's completely, 100%, totally addicted to Lord Tabs. So you can try to do good, and the outcome can still be disaster. That's one of the problems with the world we live in. 
Um, how many of you all are familiar with this scenario? Um, bank bailouts that seem to reward big-time hotshot hot money managers for poor business decisions, and they end up taking our money and giving it away. Like Your motivation can be absolutely positively pure, and the outcome can be disaster. Why? Because trouble's built into the matrix. Um, how many of you have ever done this? How many of you have ever tried to help a family only the help that you give ends up becoming a negative reinforcement to ever growing and changing and dealing with the root issue. And so they stay the same. And before you attach some sort of political agenda to it, here's one of the things I need you to realize. Uh, the Republican agenda will not help America. It's not about just cut it all back and make everybody live right because there's kids attached to it. And sometimes the worst thing is that there's kids attached to it and the waters just stay murky. And you can have your conservative agenda all day long and end up hurting a bunch of kids. We saw it plain as day this week. We want to help someone. they got two little kids. We put them up for a couple nights, and by the time we try to figure out what's going on, they're completely gone, and they're through any sort of government net, and what in the world is going on? Like your motives can be absolutely to help someone, and then the next thing you know, it only gets worse. Why? Because there's trouble built in. It's aggravating. And so now on to our story in Daniel. Starting at Bummer, and we're going to work back up, okay? All right, Daniel chapter 2, here's what happens. Uh, it's all about trouble, all right? It's about trouble and revelation, Daniel chapter 2. The trouble is this. A wicked, evil, demonized king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and anyone who can spell Nebuchadnezzar without looking at that, I'll give them $5. Takers? No. <laughs> and no fair because you, knew, you know about my game. Um, so here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, only he can't really remember the dream, but he's troubled on the inside, and so he comes up with this plan. Here's the plan. He goes to all of his magicians, all of his, all of his advisors, and all of his counselors, and he says, I need somebody to tell me the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And by the way, if you don't, you're dead. Neat. It's a great deal, isn't it? Uh, if you can tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation, then I will bless you and I will, I will let you rule with me. I'll give you a purple robe and a gold chain. But if you can't, I'm giving you nothing. In fact, I'm going to give you less than nothing. I'm going to take your life from you. And Nebuchadnezzar was a really interesting guy. He invented great ways of killing people. One of his favorite was to tie you from every limb and then send four horses running in separate directions and just pull your body parts apart. He was a really creative guy. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that troubles him, and then he passes the trouble on to everyone else, right? Of course, the magicians and the enchanters, they come to him, and they say, hey, this is totally impossible. We can't do this. See, that's, that's ultimately what trouble is. Uh, trouble is life apart from God. Trouble is life apart from God. The problem with life apart from God is that God could be speaking to you and you can't hear it. It's like a distant echo. God was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. He just couldn't hear it. That's the trouble with living life apart from God. God can be speaking and you might not be able to pick up on it. Part of the trouble in life is when, is when you don't know God, you don't know His ways. That's the real trouble in life. When you don't know God, you don't know His ways. And if you don't know His ways, there ends up being this increasing disaster that comes upon a person's life. Why is that? Well, it's very simple. It's because God is the creator of the universe. Not only is He the creator of the universe, He's absolutely good. So God is the creator of the universe. Everything that is, is by His design. And he is absolutely good. If you don't know God and you don't know his ways, then you don't know the creator and you don't know his absolute goodness. Which is to say that the good kind of life rests with the creator of the universe who is absolutely good. If you don't know him, you are, you are nowhere near the good kind of life. So not knowing him and not knowing his, his ways ensures that a person will most usually walk outside of the good kind of life and that is trouble. Like if you leave absolute goodness, what's left, right? See, if you don't know God, you might make something else your God. 
like success. Like you might make success your God. Uh, in America, particularly with, with, with men, success is, is the idol that, they, that, that we bow down in front of. Like if you don't know God, you might make success your God. Uh, you might learn success's ways, and you may end up utterly ruined. It's kind of like, it's kind of like being a part of a, of a symphony and watching the percussionist for direction rather than the conductor who is the guy who actually wrote the score and is leading the score. That's what happens when we, when we don't know God. We end up watching something else and giving our devotion and attention to it, and it leads to utter ruin. So Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't know God, he didn't fear God, and as a result, he couldn't understand Him, even though God was speaking. And it troubled him. His trouble became everyone else's trouble. Um, He was basically saying, tell me the dream or die. See, part of the, part of the, Part of the deal in life right now is trouble. Uh, so much of the trouble that comes in life is people who don't know God doing what makes sense to them. It multiplies trouble. So Nebuchadnezzar is in need of an interpreter and a translator, someone who can translate the things of God to someone who doesn't know God. It's really been our prayer lately um, is that God would raise up Daniels and interpreters for culture. Like people everywhere. People in high places, people in medium places, and people in low places are in desperate need of interpreters and translators because God is speaking to everyone. Like if he would speak to Nebuchadnezzar, he would speak to your neighbor. He really would. Anybody in here ready to be an interpreter and a translator? Andrew Simmons is, everyone. High five, Andrew. See, if you, if you want to live as a translator and interpreter for those around you, if you want to live as a translator and an interpreter for those that you share airspace with, what you're actually, actually asking is, God, I'm signing up for trouble. I'm signing up to come into that most difficult place, you know. And the only antidote is revelation. The antidote to trouble is, is revelation. Um, how many of you have ever had your life completely changed by prophetic revelation? Like somebody told you something that they couldn't have known any other way except God revealed it to them. Changed your life forever. Man, I'm telling you, like, I, I can't even tell you. I could tell you stories all day long about how God has intersected my life with prophetic revelation that changed the course of where I was headed and um, gave me joy as well. Uh, in fact, somebody left me uh, a piece of paper on my desk this week with 12 prophetic words. They didn't, and they didn't sign their name. It's one of the cool things about being pastors. Sometimes it, people come in and just leave you all this stuff. But somebody left me 12 prophetic words. And, it, and they, weren't, um, they were more than just encouragement. Uh, there was actually the whisper of God and there was prophetic revelation in them. And it brought me into a greater awareness of the activity of God in my life right here and right now. You know? Like, it'll change your life. Um, One of the things that keeps coming through in the book of Daniel is that Daniel's a man of revelation. He's an interpreter, and he's, he's a translator because he's a man of revelation. And so one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, is how is Daniel such a man of revelation? How? It's important. How, how is Daniel such a man of revelation? And the scripture shows us right here in verse 17. Nebuchadnezzar said, I've had a dream. It's driving me crazy. If you can tell me, there's a reward. If you can't tell me, you're dead. And what Daniel does is he goes and he says, Hey, give me a little time and we'll come up with an answer. And then in verse 17, this is what Daniel does. It says, And then Daniel returned to his house and he explained the matter to his friends. Yeah, those guys. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that, he, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Um, one of the first things in living a life of revelation is living a life of prayer. 
Like if you want to live a life of revelation, it's absolutely essential that you live a life that you live a life of prayer. <clears throat> Need to probably define our terms a little bit, even though we're in church. What is prayer? Prayer is actually something way more simple than, than most of us in the room right now have ever conceived. Prayer is not just the words that come out of your mouth. Um, that's all secondary. The primary thing in prayer is communion with God. Prayer is always primarily just being with God. So the first, the first step in becoming a, a person of revelation is becoming a person of prayer. And the first part of becoming a person of prayer is becoming a person who is just with God, just being with God, no words whatsoever. In fact, the longer that, I'm, that I live life with Jesus, the less words that come out, of my, come out of my mouth in my prayer time. Prayer is not so much about words as it is about being. Uh, there's, there's no point to words if you're completely unaware that God is present and in the room. So if you, want, if you want to be able to have a prayer life that leads to revelation, the first step, and it's an essential step, is to begin to develop a spiritual discipline of silence before the Lord and of, of, of focus that allows yourself to become alive and aware of the presence of God. He is everywhere all the time. Psalm 139, David says, Where can I go to escape your presence? And then he goes on 14 verses, and the answer at the end of them is nowhere. I, can't, I could go to hell, and I couldn't escape from your presence. The trouble is, so few of us are actually aware of it. And so our prayer lives are just like unending sentences, unaware of the person that we're hoping to engage. So prayer is mostly, foremost, it's about being. It's about becoming aware of Him. It's about becoming aware of the presence of God to the point that you are just as aware of Him as you are the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you right now. Jesus sort of makes a big deal out of it. In John chapter 14, He goes on and on about how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will come to live inside. He is so near. He's closer than your skin right now. And so prayer is becoming aware of that. Talking the words in prayer are always a byproduct of being. So many of us have uh, really bitter, boring, and flat prayer lives uh, that don't see a lot of answers because we started talking without a sense of His presence. Like if you're bored in prayer, it's because you're talking without a sense of, your pre- of His presence. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in prayer is that you can never talk yourself into a sense of His presence. You can pray for 30 minutes, never take a breath, tons of, tons of things said, tons of things spoken, literally bouncing off the ceiling right back at you, um, ultimately boring, and then within a week you become bitter and give up because you, you didn't first begin with becoming aware of His presence. Boredom in prayer is always lack of an awareness of presence. See, um, prayer, without, prayer without an awareness of His presence is just an activity of your own will rather than a natural overflow of con- conversation that stems from friendship. Like, like imagine, imagine a car ride to Lexington with your very best friend from Campbellsville. Lexington's about 80, 85 miles away. Depending on how fast you drive, it'll take you an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes to get there. I just want you to imagine a car ride with your very best friend. Just so you know, I can make it to Lexington like an hour and 15 because I drive like 90. But imagine a car ride to Lexington with your very best friend. Um, sometimes when Heather and I go on a car ride together, sometimes we, could, sometimes we have been known to get in the car in Campbellsville and drive to Lexington or Louisville and I'll hold her hand, and we won't say a word. And it's not weird. It's not like, you know, that thing where a husband and wife have just become so bored with one another they no longer talk. The wives are going, yeah, I don't know about that. 
No, it's not about that we've become so bored with one another that we no longer talk. It's just that I hold her hand, we're driving, I don't have to say anything, we're communing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And then other times, as soon as we get in the car and shut the door, it's just like... And then all of a sudden we're there. Bam, how did that happen? See, it's, it, it's the same thing with, with, with God. It's, it's not about words or no words. It's about being. And what I mean being, I mean being aware of his presence. And I'm talking about also you being present in the moment. It's so funny how life has actually trained everyone in the room. Modern life has trained everyone in the room uh, to not be present. If you, if you, and, and look, I, I'm not an anti-TV guy at all. I love TV. Parks and Recreation is my favorite show right now. I love it. Ron Swanson, yes, that guy. But, but, but the pace of modern life, um, the way that we soothe our anxious hearts with things like television and food, it actually has trained us to be non-present with the people that we're actually with. Uh, some of us in the room are are more comfortable with our iPhone than when we are than we are with people at the table with us. And you get you get lost in it. Why? Because uh, if I can get lost in my iPhone, I don't have to be present to the people sitting in front of me. And if I don't have to be present to the people in front of me, then I don't have to be present to their problems or my own problems or working it out or not working it out or forgiveness or bitterness. I can just I can go away. So being present is it's a big deal. So being people of revelation means being people of, of prayer, which means being people who, who are just who are present before God, aware of his presence. And the talking, the conversation, the uh, anything that comes out of the mouth that has a sound attached to it, it's it's the overflow of friendship. I've trained myself uh, in the last three years. I will not ask or declare anything before God until I become aware that he is with me and that I can feel his affection for me. Otherwise, I just sit in silence. It's better, it's better to be silent before God than it is to ramble for 30 minutes unaware of him and unaware of his affection for me. You'll, you'll actually end up being happier and you'll see more answered prayer. Uh, the second thing that Daniel does, also here in verse 17, is that Daniel is a man of prayer. But uh, have you noticed that he goes and he uh, calls his friends in to help him? Daniel calls his friends in to help him. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, hey, I need help. I need help. Um, there's a biblical principle, especially as it relates to uh, prayer and anything, anything when it comes to the movement of God's Spirit. There's a biblical principle of partnership. And it actually evades every portion of life. It's not just prayer or things of the Spirit. It's every, everything in life. There's, there is an exponential quality to partnership. The book of Joshua says that one can put a thousand to flight. The book of Deuteronomy says that one can put a thousand to flight and two can put how many? 10,000 to flight. It's exponential. I don't know how that works, but it works. Uh, one afternoon, I needed my grass mowed. And Dr. Ray says, well, I'll help you. Now, it takes me an hour and a half to mow my grass by myself. We have the exact same mower, the exact same size with the exact same motor. He came over and helped me and we mowed it in less than an hour. I mean, we love it. What do we mow it? 22 minutes. Tell me how that works. I don't know how that works. There's an exponential factor when it comes to partnership. It also happens in prayer as well. Um, my dad is sort of a horse and mule person. And I remember going to uh, like these mule pulling contests where they hook heavy sleds to horses or mules. And you can hook a sled to a horse and it might pull 2,000, but you hook... You hook a team to a sled, and it can pull seven or 8,000. Tell me how that works. It's built into life, this thing of partnership. And so there's something about living in a, 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 an atmosphere of revelation that really comes not just by prayer, but it comes by um, creating partnerships in prayer. Um, last fall, we did a, a prayer walk. Some of y'all went on, on that with us. Y'all remember that? When we walked around town, we did some prayer walking? Um, Andrew, you were in my group, weren't you? Yeah, Andrew and I, we, were, uh, we walked around the university and around 
uh, around Meter Street and down uh, Columbia Avenue there. And we were just praying. And one of the things, this is really funny, one of the things that we prayed is, we said, we prayed, God, would you bring, would you bring like businesses right across from the university? Would you bring businesses across from the university? And would you bring like, uh, like, like pizza places? And we just started praying for these things in the house. And then I found out this week that one of the pizza places in town is moving from another place in town right across from where we said we asked God to move one. Like, how does that work? Well, it works because we asked. And I'm also convinced that it works because we had partnered on this thing. Even something as insignificant as, God, would you bring a certain kind of culture to Campbellsville? And would you bring a certain kind of culture right around the university? One of the questions that we have to ask ourselves right now, though, is this, when it comes to prayer and revelation. Um, are, we, are, we going to, are we coming to God just because we're looking for answers? This always gets brought up, you know? Am I praying just so I can get answers? Am I coming to God just so I can look smarter? And, and the answer is, is no. Um, this kind of revelation lifestyle really happens when, when we're coming just for Him. We're coming just for Him. Um, fathers and mothers, imagine your kids only coming to you to get your stuff. After a while, that becomes a bit disappointing. Like, why don't, why don't you sit with me on the couch? No, Dad, I just want your stuff. No, really, sit with me on the couch. No, just give me $20, you know. Eventually, eventually, that's really disappointing and it's not much of a relationship. Now imagine this. Imagine that your daughter just wants to come and sit with you on the couch and like watch your favorite show. Like as a father, will you withhold anything from her? No. Not at all. Not at all. My kids have kind of learned this, so they come and watch like my shows or whatever and <laughs> they know the secret to my heart is just come and be with me and especially Magnolia, she comes, she brings a blanket. We sit on the couch. We watch what is it? Gator Boys? I don't know. She loves that one. Or she always wants to watch When Vacations Attack. Yeah, I don't get that either. Seth told me the other day, he's like, Dad, I really hope that we, we, we could go and have a vacation that attacked us. <laughs> I'm like, no, I do not want to be attacked by my vacation. Yeah, so is, is prayer just about like, Going to our father and getting his stuff. Like, no, no, eventually that just wears it out. It's just, oh, it's a grind. It's not just a grind for you, it's a grind for him. And it's not just a grind for him, it eventually becomes a grind for you. But would a father not give his daughter who comes and hangs out on the couch with him, would he withhold anything from that daughter? No, I can tell you from experience, wouldn't withhold anything from her. Like, here's the keys to the car. I know it doesn't make sense, but go for it, girl. (laughs) Yeah, would God be so easily manipulated? No, no. Prayer and revelation is always about being. It's always about being. Um, another question we might need to address is, is this. Uh, is this just some sort of like magical formula? Like, can you just apply this magical formula to the troubles of your life? Like you get real big trouble, so you're going to start praying. And if it's really big trouble, then I'll go invite some of my friends. Um, no, of course not. God is not some sort of cosmic Santa Claus. He doesn't have to do anything. Like if God has to answer my prayer, who's God? Me or Him? Right? Like if He has to. Like, and I, I, you hear people talk about prayer and revelation, and, they, and they, I hate any time prayer and revelation becomes some sort of magical formula that you can apply to any, any part of your life. I, I sit in the purple chair and I go, but wait a minute. At that point, who's God? Me or him? No, he's not cosmic Santa Claus. He doesn't have to do anything. A couple of things, two things in particular that will help us along. Number one, um, prayer and, and revelation, uh, it's a lifestyle. It has to be a lifestyle and not just the demand of a, of a, of a, a certain mo- moment. Uh, one of the things that we realize when we look at the book of Daniel is that prayer 
And communion with God was a lifestyle for Daniel. By the time we get to, uh, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, which is Daniel in the lion's den, it becomes, it becomes incredibly clear because all of Daniel's adversaries are using his lifestyle against him. So they go to the king and they say, hey, no one can pray to anyone but you, blah, 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 blah. And they, they, they come up with this plan because they know what about Daniel? That he's a man of prayer and that it's his lifestyle and that he's praying three times a day, every single day. What's the point? It has to be lifestyle for us. See, the, the big moment will prove too big without properly digging the well of intimacy when there's no pressure and there's no cause. Like, you can't just come into the moment of pressure and the big moment and the moment when the spotlight falls on you and, and get a breakthrough. I, you almost never. Those kinds of things have to be developed through a lifestyle of excavating a well of intimacy, a well of being with God. That's what Daniel did. That's the reason that no, no situation was ever too big for Daniel because he had, he, had, he had dug a well. He had formed character. He had formed a history of God when there was no pressure whatsoever. Um, Michael Jordan could hit the winning shot not because he was a big moment guy. No, it's because he had shot that, that particular shot, that turnaround jumper fadeaway 40,000 times before. And so when there's someone in front of him, it's, it's nothing. It, I've done this a million times before. It's the reason that, that we have to excavate those wells when, when no one else is around. Um, no one gets to perform brain surgery their first day in the OR. And aren't you glad? No, the pressure is too big. No, you, you work up to that. You, you, you begin to learn techniques when there is no pressure, when it isn't a human life on the line, right? And even from the scripture, before David killed Goliath, he had tangled with a lion and a bear, right? First the lion, then the bear, then Goliath. And see, like right now, um, even right now, God is preparing everybody in the room for the day of trouble, and he's preparing you for the day of trouble with the day of no pressure if you will give yourself to it. By the way, trouble's going to come for everybody in the room, and God is preparing everybody in the room for the day of trouble by giving you lots of days with zero pressure if you'll but see it and use it. See, crisis doesn't make a person. Crisis reveals what's already there. If you squeeze an orange, you'll get orange juice. And when life clamps down on you, what's really there will come out. What's really, really there. What do you do when you get when crisis collapses on you or your family? What comes out? Because what comes out is what's really, really there. Really, really there. Um, kind of a sad story about that sort of thing. I, I, know, I know people who have uh, lived their life with Jesus for 40 years and at the end of their life, gripped with fear of death. I'm like, what? How? How is that even possible? Well, the, the, the stark, cold reality is that they wasted their no-pressure moments. Life was beginning to squeeze them, and what was really there was beginning to come out. Yeah. A couple of things. Number one is living a lifestyle of prayer. And then the other, the other thing here as well is that uh, we need to be people who are moved by compassion. Revelation hangs out in a compassionate atmosphere. Revelation came, hangs out in a compassion, compassionate atmosphere. Uh, Daniel wasn't just looking to save his own life, but he was also looking to save the rest of the, the wise men of Babylon. As odd as that sounds. That comes out to greater and lesser degrees depending on the translation you, you read. But um, Daniel was looking not just to save his own skin, but he was looking to save more than him. Um, it's pretty stunning. Um, but compassion... Compassion opens the door to revelation. One of the things we have to ask ourselves is, do I see other people's trouble as my trouble? You know? To the degree that I can just leave your trouble as your trouble, then I never have to step into that 
I never have to be God's solution to that. And so I never have to be a person of revelation. No need. You deal with it. And then I love what Daniel does after he gets the word from God. In verse 19 he says, The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. I don't know if that's a dream or if it was just at night and he had a vision. Either way. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And this is what he said. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give you thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel's a man of prayer, but he's also a man of worship. Prayer and worship, they kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly. I know, I really spent a lot of time thinking about that. (laughs) I'm moving in my revelatory gift right now. Uh, Yeah, but worship and prayer kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly, except I guess here, here, worship and prayer are the bread and revelation. It's the meat inside. Um, Worship essentially springs from the same fountain as prayer. It's rooted in simply being. And the really great thing about worship as a lifestyle is worship is its own kind of revelation. Uh, Worship is its own kind of revelation because worship is always rooted in a revelation of who God is. If I see who God is, then I'll declare that back to Him. You know, to the degree I can see God, I can respond. I can respond. Worship is rooted in the revelation that God is a King and He sits over the affairs of men, and it's it's the heart that has been struck by all. That's what worship is. Worship is a heart that's been struck by all, um, that can look at creation and can see a Creator. See, not everybody can look at creation and see a creator. If you can look at creation and see a creator, you're already beginning to move in Revelation. Uh, It's the heart that can see His presence in really ordinary, borderline boring circumstances. Uh, Worship is a heart with its eyes wide open. Uh, worship is a response. It's, it's always a response to the presence and the goodness of God. And worship is a response that allows one to see even more. It's really crazy. Worship allows you to see even more. Worship is already seeing who God is, and then worship actually ends up allowing you to see more. It's the reason that the creatures who live around the throne of God are covered in eyes. It's crazy. The guys who are closest to Him actually have developed in their bodies... An ability to see even more. Why, why are those creatures covered in eyes? The creatures are covered in eyes because there's so much to see. It's not just about proximity, but proximity ends up changing who you are so that you can see more. So if you want to live a revelation lifestyle, it's about becoming a worship person. And it's the same with, uh, with people who worship. Uh, if you want to walk in Revelation, one of the things you need to do before God is you just need to begin to acknowledge what you see. Just, just, it's really simple. Just begin to acknowledge what you see. Sing what you see back to God. Sing what you see. Sing what you see about God back to God. Why, why, why singing? Um, you can worship God without singing. Singing is really important um, above just even speaking it back to God. Above uh, just declaring, God, we love you. There's something about singing. And one of the things about singing singing is uh, a person will sing when words no longer capture it anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Why do people sing when they're in love? They sing when they're in love because saying I love you is no longer good enough. So when we begin to engage something like singing, it it actually touches a deeper place in your heart. And when you begin to sing back what you see in God, it actually goes a level deeper. And I actually believe that it puts eyeballs all over you and allows you to see more of what's already there. So 
Sing it back to God. Uh, give God thanks for what He's shown you. Give God thanks for what He's given you. Like if you can see in your life that everything you have isn't because you were bigger, stronger, and smarter with better strategies, but that it really did come from heaven's hand. And when you acknowledge that back to him, you're opening the door to revelation in your life. That is a revelation in and of itself. So many men in particular think that the reason that they have a really great house and that they have a really great truck and a really great barn and a really great boat is because that they worked really hard and that they were smarter than all the other idiots. And the truth is, wrong again. You have that stuff only because God has been kind and gracious and compassionate and put you in a country where you can work and see results. And it's the grace and the favor of God demonstrated over and over again in your life, even if you're completely arrogant and unaware. And that's a revelation in and of itself. And when we begin to engage in this sort of activity, you'll begin to see things that you never saw before. Like you can just say things like this. God, thanks. You can, you can just, it can be really basic. Thanks for, thanks for the job that allows me to pay for my mortgage. You can start right there. And in a short while, you'll begin to see things about God, yourself and your life and the interplay that you never saw before and has been happening for your entire life. That kind of activity actually opens up the doorway to greater revelation. One of the things I love in this is after Daniel gets this revelation, he begins to worship God. And then after that, he goes in and, and right in front of Nebuchadnezzar, who has a penchant for killing people, he's so bold with, with, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if you've noticed that. Daniel's really polite, but he's always really bold. Like this man kills people all the time. And he walks right in and he says, hey, I've got, I've got the dream and I've got the interpretation. And I'm, it, it is a remarkable situation. Can you imagine standing before Nebuchadnezzar knowing, if I get this wrong, or if, I even, if he even thinks this is wrong, like I could be right, and if he thinks this is wrong, I'm dead. And everyone else is. Like, what would you do in that kind of pressure situation? It's remarkable, the boldness and the confidence of Daniel. Why is Daniel so bold and confident? He's bold and confident because he's built his entire life standing before the throne of the one true king. It's amazing. Like when you, when you build your whole life standing before the one true king, like there's not an earthly king that's going to like freak you out. Like boldness comes from standing before God. Yeah, even right now, um, one of the things that God is holding out to us is he's, he's actually asking us as a church um, to come into a new level of being with him. I'm avoiding using the words of using the words of he's calling us to a new level of prayer and worship. It's, it's actually more fundamental than that. He's actually calling us into a new level of being with him. This is one of the things I've noticed about worship and prayer um, and people worship, prayer and people. One of the things I've noticed about worship, prayer, and people is that there are some people who are really good at prayer. Like they are so good at it, they, they, they like lock themselves into little closets, uh, which is good. You should do that because Jesus said, go to your closet and pray. But they lock themselves into their closets, their prayer closet, and they just pray. And they, can, they could pray from like 10 in the morning till 6 a.m. And they could be so happy, like, like just like you never see them. And when you ask them like, hey, where you been? They're like, dude, I've been praying, you know, just what's up, you know? And, and some people are like really good at worship. They just grab their guitar and they just, they just, it doesn't matter where they're at, you know, they can just worship forever. Um, and then there are other people who aren't very good at worship or prayer, but they're really good at like doing stuff, like just going out and doing stuff. And one of the things that God is asking us is he's asking us to be people like Daniel who are really good at prayer, who are really good at worship, but who are also really good at doing things. And I would like to just say that those are not mutually exclusive activities. It's one of the problems right now is that um, in America, we have applied, we have applied um, specialization mentality to kingdom life in such a way that we have actually dwarfed our ability to live in godly calling and purpose. What do I mean by that? Well, we assume that certain people are like the prayer warriors. No, everybody's a prayer warrior. And we've assumed that like certain people are like intercessors. Well, no, everybody is. Like we've assumed that certain people, well, they're just, they're worshipers. No, like everyone is. By the way, what are you going to do with your healing ministry when heaven comes for real? 
Like, the only thing that's going to be left is worship. So don't tell me, like... <laughs> right? But then sometimes the people who are really good at prayer and worship are terrible at doing. Like, they're more comfortable, like, not knowing anybody, not really having a real life with anybody, just getting lost in the prayer and worship thing. And, and they don't really do anything. Like, they know all kinds of stuff because God has whispered things to them, but they haven't actually done anything. And one of the things I feel like God wants to do here is that He wants us to be really good at prayer, really good at worship, and really good at doing things. Really good at doing things. Um, Doing things without prayer is really just arrogant and self-reliant. Doing things without prayer is arrogance and it's it's self-reliance. It's a life committed to small and doable things. Like, if you're one of those people who's really good at doing things, like, you're like, I don't need to pray. I know what God wants us to do. And you're just going to go do things. Yeah, there's a certain level of that that's just arrogance. And it's a commitment to a lifestyle of doing really small, doable things that you can manage on your own. God has much more in mind for you than that. The other side of the ball is this, is praying without doing is just delusional. It's delusional. Where's the trust in that? Like, at what point does faith get interacted? You know? Like, if you just pray all the time and you hear great things from God, but you never do anything, there's no trust in that. There's no faith in that. And by the way, God has so much more for you than that. Both of those kind of lifestyles end up, end up dividing and separating life between spirit and non-spiritual things. We end up living in greater realms of, of dualism and escapism And ultimately, we end up being unable to simply be. God is asking us to be people who are really good at prayer, really good at worship, and really good at doing things. It's one of the words that God keeps speaking to me over this church, no experts. We need to run away from this, this idea that somebody is an expert. Or that we need what we need as an expert. Now Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would teach you. Everybody's qualified. Amen. Amen. Hey, um, why don't you stand up this morning? I want to pray for you.